Good morning, everyone. So I'm Dominic Gerard. I'm with the BAMP Center for Arts and Creativity here. And today, the plan is to explore how we slow down in an accelerated world and whether or not artists can or even should help us do anything about it. So to help me sort that out, we have three faculty guests from our Stillness Residency joining me here on stage. Um, Diane is an award-winning artist whose social and interventionist works, we'll talk about that in a few minutes too, can make you maybe rethink your relationship with art, with the people in the world around you. Richard Reed Perry is best known as a core member of the rock band Arcade Fire, but he's also an accomplished composer. His first album of classical music is Music for Heart and Breath. Some of you may go to the performance of it tonight. The compositions are performed by musicians who wear stethoscopes so they can listen to and play along with the rhythms of their own heartbeats. And Christopher House over at the end, pretty far away from me actually, is the artistic director of the Toronto Dance Theatre. He's an award-winning choreographer and dancer with over 60 works to his credit at TDT alone. And he's also worked in video and short films and alongside other artists. So Diane, Richard, Christopher, thank you. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Um, I think when we talk about stillness and slowing down in an accelerated, accelerated, I keep rehearsing that word, accelerated world, <laughs> we keep blaming technology for all this stuff. So I thought I'd want to start there because in my brief conversations with you, I got a sense that some of you have taken versions of technological Sabbaths while you were here this week. I know, Richard, you were talking about trying to treat your smartphone like an old school landline. So what's that about and how, how's that going? Uh, it's going well. Um, yeah, I decided when I got here that I was going to leave my cell phone at home and I would check it only if I went home the way that one did when one had, you know, just a, an answering machine. Um, that's going really well. I highly recommend it if anyone wants to get into that. <laughs> it's kind of as simple as that. I just didn't, uh, I wanted to have kind of an encapsulated moment where I as a departure from my everyday life where, you, you know, I re you, one really just allows a cell phone to constantly make your attention available to anyone who wants it, which for me has been a slow and semi-conscious and ultimately, I think, kind of unhealthy transition into a different way of living than I was doing 10 years ago, uh, and which I end up kind of resenting, I think. Um, and it's, but it's really hard to make that break. And it's like, how do you make yourself unavailable the same way that you were generally unavailable in, you know, in 2000 before you had a smartphone and before people were texting you. That um, ship has kind of sailed a little bit, right? It's kind of sailed, but it actually hasn't. It's like the ship is right there. You can turn off your damn phone, but it's hard to do because of a mode of thinking that one gets into, I think, in the current paradigm of, you know, of everything all at once, all the time, always available. Um, so anyway, it's been great. I highly recommend it. Turn off your phone. <laughs> Dan, I think I know last night you were online applying for a Canada Council grant, right? So <laughs> I, listened, I listened to Pico's, you know, uh, very convincing discussion about, you know, slowing down and uh, being still and not, you know, and I went home and quickly got a grant in before midnight. <laughs> I was like really clear. Yeah, yeah, I haven't had any kind of sabbatical. In fact, I was just saying to my partner, I wish I had had a chance to come here before there was email and phones and really have a retreat from the rest of my obligations in the, uh, the rest of my life in Toronto, but sadly uh, not for me yet. I, I, I've been joking, I'm going to meditate when I get back to Toronto. <laughs> I'm too busy here. Uh, yeah. Christopher, were you trying to cut email out completely this week or 
don't know. <laughs> 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 I, I mean, it's a great idea, yeah. but um, it's impossible. I and mean, even our communication with each Here. other is, is by email constantly. Um, I, just picking up on what you said about you wish you were here before email. I, I can attest to the fact I, I did an extremely valuable month-long residency uh, maybe in 1999 in one of the Leighton studios. And I got so much work done uh, just in terms of, of thinking in a, in a still situation and just devouring the library and spending time outside. And two years later, I came back and there was a beautiful big uh, Mac in the, in the same studio. And my experience changed completely. And I, and I almost asked if it could be taken from the room because it's an addiction. I knew I couldn't control my impulses and not use it, but I couldn't even bring myself to do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting relationship with the world that has been irrevocably changed. You know, I think, I think checking our email as odious as it is and responding to 100 administrative requests is actually easier than creative work. So, yeah, <laughs> so, way um, easier. You know, it's, it's a procrastination device. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, um, creative work is really hard and you yeah. need to suffer the discomfort of having no distractions enough to actually arrive in a place to make things. And so it is, I, I'd have the same hard time. I wonder if you all have variations of definitions of what stillness means for you. So maybe we should go around and just sort of get into your heads a little bit. Christopher, in your practice as a dancer and choreographer, how do you, can do you even define it, but like how close to a definition of stillness can you get with us now? Sure, I mean, stillness is a, a paradox in, in dancing because we associate it with, with movement and, and with the kinetic at all times. But stillness plays the same function in relation to movement as silence does with sound. It's, it's absolutely necessary as a way of framing. And, and in particular, in any kind of choreographic work that, that foregrounds uh, a kind of specificity of sensation in the body, stillness is, is a hugely important part of that. So is there stillness in even the most kinetic of movement? Stillness has such a clear relationship to time, to me. A consciousness that time is passing and a consciousness that, that time is being filled by whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is you're thinking, and whatever it is you're feeling. And, and a body in, in movement can travel this distance from here to there in an infinite number of ways doing the simplest gesture. And there's, there's, so, much, there's so much excitement in, in being able to draw the audience, audience's attention to the, to the smallest of details. Diane, small details. You were talking to me a little bit about how Perhaps as a visual artist, stillness is about the space between you and the object that you're working with. Mm. What, what are you exploring in there? 
It's been interesting, especially being here and listening to my, you know, the other artists, you know, in music, talking about um, silence and quiet, and um, listening to dancers talk about space and um, movement in terms of stillness. And I realized visual artists, even though you know we work across media and use performance in music, etc., I've been thinking a lot about how materials, like how holding things, like either literally or as in a kind of held moment, almost a held breath. Um, is relevant for me and for visual artists. Uh, you know, I'm especially thinking about materials, about objects, and how they're a kind of um, focus point, maybe, around which I can I can let go of some of the distractions of life. I can um, have a different perspective, maybe, about time or other aspects of being. And you know, whether it's a cup of tea or whether it's um, you know, a food like honey or something like that. It's it's a kind of conduit to a very focused, very present experience. And um, I think, you know, you know, when I started studying art, I was really interested mostly in sculpture because I was really kind of material focused. It was a more tactile uh, interest. And um, even though some of my projects have become much more ethereal than that and, and in time, I always come back to kind of holding stuff, either like literally or in a, in a more conceptual way. And Richard, as a musician, you, you actually, you've played across the spectrum of musical styles. Mm -hmm. Big giant rock band on one end, quiet, sol solitary work almost with music for heart and breath. Is stillness from a musician's perspective necessarily about silence? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, there are many answers. I think it can be about many things, and it entirely depends on the music, and it entirely depends on the musician, and it entirely depends on the context. Um, uh, yeah, and you know the difference between process and work itself, and feeling or sort of information that's transmitted from the work. I think those are all. There's stillness has a slightly different definition in each of those things. Um, for me, that the music for heart and breath work in particular, um, as an offset for me experientially, as an offset from the rock band thing, was like um, you know as I as I worked on it, it, it became very clear to me that it was the absolute antithesis um, of the rock band experience, and that that's what. As, a, as my own personal process, that's what I was looking for in it. Um, so you have kind of loud, extroverted, a lot of people, you know, arguing, <laughs> huge audiences, huge volume, huge spectacle, um, and everything out, 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 out all the time. Whereas the music for heart and breath was alone, it was quiet, it was fragile, it was in, 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 in. It was not people arguing, it was just me quietly making decisions and kind of putting them into motion. Um, and yeah, with the goal of, uh, of finding a version of stillness that perhaps isn't about nothing happening, but is about only paying attention to what is is there happening at its at its quietest uh, all the time. So, so coming back and back and back, returning to. Um, what's always there and happening that's there as a, as you know, a, a, a conduit, as Dan was just saying, to a, an, a, an experience, an immediate experience and something that's there underneath everything. And that was kind of the goal. It's like, oh, can we pay attention with this music to what's underneath everything? And if you let 
all of the quickness and the loudness and the distraction go what's there to work with and sort of this basic human rhythm and this human tool that's underneath things that allows for something very quiet to emerge. So one maybe couldn't have lived without the other and vice versa, I suppose. I take it for you too that silence doesn't necessarily mean, or stillness doesn't necessarily mean, you know, meditation and not moving, that your interpretation of it doesn't necessarily require that. Um, no, but it, it, requ it requires quietude, which doesn't necessarily mean an absence of sound, but it means uh, more of an, a, an, an a, perhaps an attention that isn't, interrupted, perhaps. Diane, I want to talk about your temper, my weather, because I think it really is a great example of the kind of ways that perhaps you thought about it going forward or you realize it after the fact, but I think we've even got a couple of slides for some context. Um, this is basically based on the work of you, of beekeepers. So here it goes. Maybe you could describe this a little bit, what you're trying to do with it. And of course, sure. how does it relate to the idea that we're talking about today? This is a, it was a very large piece for me <laughs> and not, uh, not a leisurely and relaxing piece to put together, but um, uh, as part of my practice, I often join, um, you know, clubs and participate in various kinds of, you might call them hobbies, but they're quite serious preoccupations for some people, you know, among amateurs and experts. And so for many years, I was learning and practicing beekeeping. And what inevitably happens, you know, I may begin these things thinking, this is a nice break from work. Um, inevitably, they, <laughs> I can't help but be an artist still in these circumstances and um, sort of bring those tools and insights to the activity and, and then try and convince my the friends I make in these organizations to, to play along with me doing something a little different than they usually do. And so um, I was really fascinated. A lot of artists have worked with, with bees and with um, honeycomb before, but I was actually interested in beekeepers like as, as a, a kind of a, a skill set, you know, the special, the special things that beekeepers have access to and are, are capable of. And one thing I appreciated... Um, Beekeeping, like if you're going to stick your arm in a, a nest of 50,000 stinging insects, uh, there, there's a very particular way you have to do that so, so that you don't agitate the bees and, and you can only imagine what happens next. And um, from watching senior beekeepers um, practice this and learn um, how to do this activity, it's very much about a kind of performance, a, a quality of movement and comportment. Um, these are people who really know how to be still, and they know how to breathe deeply, and they know how to move very slowly with tremendous patience, attuned to these tiny little insects and there are thousands and thousands of them trying not to squish any. You know, commercial beekeepers don't <laughs> move like this. Um, they take out leaf blowers and stuff. But amateur beekeepers who have a tremendous um, attachment and affection for the bees, you know, it's a very, very special kind of, of um, comportment. And it really fascinated me because if you don't move this way and you're hasty and, and um, rough, you know, in the hive and you're agitated and you're scared and your heart is racing, um, the bees uh, get agitated too. And so there's a kind of reciprocity of your sort of energetic condition and the bees and they get more agitated and you get more agitated and they get more agitated and it can all get way out of control. And so I, I was really fascinated by this kind of reciprocal effect, you know, my stillness and their stillness. And so I wanted to make a piece that sort of 
framed that and, and looked at the potential of that. Um, and the piece is called Your Temper, My Weather. Uh, I was thinking of a lot of things. You know, when your, your spouse in your house is in a bad mood, you know, it's like the air in the house. Like, these are your, this is your weather, you know? This is, these are the conditions that you exist in. And we know that. Like, we know how our... our uh, how we affect one another, you know, just from the inside out. And so what I did was, um, I thought, if one beekeeper can calm 50,000 bees, like, I wonder if I got a huge number of beekeepers, like 100, and we could change, like, the air in Toronto. We could, we could change the weather. Like, we could change, um, you know, maybe everything. Like, this would be a very powerful effect if beekeepers <laughs> just did what they do, which is practice this special kind of calm. And it's a calm that also has to do with care, you know? They're being careful. It's a kind of empathy. Justin Waddell and Jacqueline Bell and the exhibition they um, curated outside, they, they, they created a beautiful term, um, uh, reciprocal somatic listening, you know, it, it, and in it is a kind of empathy and feeling, and um, it's hard to articulate, uh, but I wanted to see what the effect was at a big scale. So this is at the Art Gallery of Ontario in a massive marble um, walker court, and um, for five hours the beekeepers were still it was like a sit-in, too, which for me, stillness also has a, has a protest dimension, you know, if you, if you just are present. And um, so the public was invited to kind of just feel this, this kind of, uh, you know, I hesitate to say energy, but <laughs> to feel this effect of their stillness. The um, weather. Yeah, yeah, and see if we could change the air, like if we could... Yeah, and there were, we were... Because it's hard to sit for five hours, I did have to work with... Um, to meditation instructors, and you know, I, it's a very long-winded, complicated way to get to meditation, um, because I realize these practices are in other aspects of life. But the instructors did lead us so that we had a kind of framework and didn't um, fall apart or anything. And uh, one of the instructors led us in a humming meditation, and it was incredible because all of the AGO was vibe with a hundred people humming. Like you could feel this resonance in your bones so vividly. I, it was um, really affecting, and a lot of the audience joined us and um yeah it was a big performance where we, we didn't say anything yeah christopher what about that relationship between the artist and the audience there's there's a contract there that happens right and have you seen that 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 contract change over time as this world is accelerated you know to the point of the theme we're talking about in in relation to stillness yeah i mean there there's so many different kinds of stillness stillnesses in the images that those types evoke. I mean, there's, there's the stillness of protest, there's the stillness of obedience, there's the stillness of violence and repression, um, there's the stillness of, of listening, which is always so interesting to perceive, um, the stillness of waiting, which, which we find so fascinating in the animal kingdom, just that extraordinary way of being simultaneously motionless and absolutely like every one of your senses attentive. And then, and then I think in, in relationship to dancing, if we go beyond representing these different images, there's the stillness of increased sensation, which is such an interesting thing to me. And I'll, I'll give an example of that. I, in a solo performance that I did 
recently, which was an adaptation of another choreographer's work. There was a section where I had to embody a series of landscapes. And I think the, the, the first instinct would be to, to find yourself in some kind of pose, which would have a stillness, and to realize that, okay, that's not very interesting. <laughs> Maybe I'd better make up another, I don't know, what is a landscape <laughs> pose? What are those things? But the instruction within the score was to, and this is, was so lovely, was not to create landscape, but to notice landscape within your body. So um, I'm just here by accident in this particular place in my body, in this room, in relation to all of you people. And then my task becomes increasing my sensation, noticing the different places where my body is touching the arm of the chair, where my weight is falling in the seat, the temperature of the air on my body, the quality of light, the way it's hitting, the sensations in my fingertips, my sort of meta-awareness of what the shape might be based on all of my experiences. So I can, with my mind and my body, animate this landscape until it feels like it's time to, you know, in some way discover the next one, and then the same process begins. And in this contract with the audience that you're discussing, I think something has switched in, um, in it's almost an, an ethical switch. So on one side of a line, there's a commitment to watching dance as a, a, a beautiful acrobat, as a, as a fantasy of something that how wonderful to inhabit that. Some of the same instincts we have with, with sports. And then also this beautiful place where dancing can, can bring everything to you. But I think on the other side of the line is, is a hunger uh, and curiosity and an actual demand within the audience to watch dance as an expression of, of discovery so that the, the, the performer is engaged in a process of discovery and in some ways embodies a way of being in the world that includes increased attention. And just this beautiful question, what if I could actually be in dialogue with everyone in this room at this particular moment, rather than performing with the audience as this abstract entity to be pleased or amazed or seduced in some way. So that, that it's, an, it's an interesting place, I think, in performance in general. So are you saying the audience is asking for more from you? They, that there's a need for the audience to absorb more of, of a presence from the performers on stage that they're, because of the way their lives are busy and crazy? Well, I think that it's a necessity because our relationship to performance has changed so much. There are so many ways that we're, that we're fed by the digital world that in many ways has replaced the things that we would have found in a, in a live performance, you know, in storytelling, 
in, in certainly in theater, in all kinds of ways. There, there's so many astonishing ways of, of changing our perception through the digital world. So I think when people come to a live performance, what, what they're looking for is an argument that, that proves the, the ongoing, the need for liveness, the, in, the need for eventfulness in performance. Otherwise, why would you go to a live performance right now when there's so many other ways to be stimulated? Diane, do you think artists, is it a job description for all artists of any stripe to embody these themes that because of what you do, which is observe and think yeah. and present, that it's kind of your job to show I the do. world what stillness can do? I mean, I would never prescribe a job for every artist because I think every art, you know, artists have many different um, roles. Um, but certainly, I know if I watch contemporary dance, um, I'm thrilled to observe someone really feeling, you know, and you know, you said making discoveries, feeling. This is the research of artists. And, um, you know, we did some wonderful movement workshops with Christopher who talked about follow your curiosity, you know, and how important is the curiosity um, of an artist? Maybe everyone else in other work may not have time to follow their curiosity, but I know in my own work, I've, I've decided to allow myself that. If I'm urgently curious about something, I'm going to trust that that's important and I'm going to follow it intensely because I have the, you know, the parameters and funds and support you know, to do so and sort of bring that back to a broader audience and conversation. And I think it is an important role for artists. And as you know, sensitive people, presumably, uh, we have a lot to... We have many tools with which to experience the world and, and you know, follow our curiosity and bring it back. Richard, what do you think is, what do you think of like this idea that there's a certain kind of responsibility of, of the toolkits of, of performers to bring this kind of conversation to an audience on a regular basis? Um, this, I mean, I think, many kinds of conversations. I don't think just this, I don't think this is the conversation of artists. I think this is a conversation that artists are having sure. at this moment in this room. <laughs> right now. Right now, and <laughs> some of each of our work engages with this conversation that we're having right now, but it also engages with many conversations, you know. Um, I think there are a lot of things that are worth paying attention to that we don't necessarily as a culture prioritize paying attention to. Um, I think that is, I think all of those things are the job of artists, of paying attention to the things that don't necessarily get paid attention to or looking at them from an angle that isn't, it's possibly very important to look at them from and is maybe being ignored in the everyday conversation of headlines and Facebook feeds or what have you. Yeah, yeah so like paying attention and looking at them things from a different lens is important, but I wonder, when we talk about the busy world, it's always produce more, work harder, spend more time doing all those things, and it's easy to think of that in a businessy world, but I'm wondering if there's a pressure as an artist now to perform way, perform or produce way more volume than you thought you would have to in the past. Like, are you also being sucked in by that, that desire right now to accelerate and go, 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 and make, make, make? Has that come up in your work? Of course. I mean, of course yeah. it comes up. Yeah. I think the eternally important thing yeah. is to do better work, not more 
work. It's to create better things, not more things, and to do a better job of everything rather than do more, <laughs> more things all the time. I think that, that um, for artists and non-artists, I think less and better is a much better <laughs> way towards a, <laughs> a brighter tomorrow. <laughs> but like towards a life that we can live, like I think doing everything better and quite possibly, you know, do less of the, <laughs> do less of the less good things and more of the more good things, you know, in every context, in every context, art and relationships and life and economics and writing and news reporting, do less news reporting, do way less news reporting and report about more important things and do a better job talking about them. Like for God's sakes, you know. <laughs> but I think inevitably we all still have deadlines and stresses and status anxiety Absolutely. and yeah. we need of lines course. on our CV or, of you know, yeah. um, we still have the same pressures of everyone else. And unfortunately I can't just practice the things I practice and, um, you know, let them go. I, I, I need to make a work out of them, which is work. And, uh, and you know, that's just inevitable part of doing this as a career. Um, you know, it's been an irony since we've been here for this week, you know, that w the stillness program has been so busy. Yeah. <laughs> so we've all been like heavily, heavily uh, programmed running around. And, you know, this is just a necessary conflict. You know, we can talk about this subject, um, uh, but there's not a lot of time to just be quiet and... Um, yeah, not produce, you know. But um, even, like, we were, yeah. Diane and I were having a rare moment of quietude this week yeah. and had a cup of tea, and we were, I was just, Diane did this really beautiful talk earlier this week about her work, and I, um, and how, she, and she was saying, mentioning during the talk that often it takes her, you know, she'll be dwelling on an idea for three years before she'll put it into motion, you know, and you were saying to me, people you know, you know, you do performance art. People call you and being like, "Hey, can you do some performance art at my thing? It's in two weeks." Yeah, <laughs> and and you say no, right? Yeah, I Which have to. I, I think, I can't, yeah. you know, you can't. One can't turn down every gig that is offered. But I think it, to respect the actual re realities and the truths about what the actual thing is that you create, the actual thing, if the actual thing that you create is something that takes three years in order for it to be good and reach real fruition that then becomes really of value and then to be able to just say, no, I, you know, I can't do a thing at your <laughs> function in three weeks because I need to think about it for six months or a year or, you know, I think that's, it's kind of a more sustainable model for everything if, if one can figure out the pragmatic aspects of one's life around that, you know. There's a piece I love um, by an American artist, Tom Friedman, and it's a, it's a blank piece of paper. It's about this big. And it's called A Thousand Hours of Staring. And it's simply a piece of paper he kept in his studio. Um, took him about five years. He sort of logged staring into the empty page, you know. He just... He would literally sit in his studio. There's not much discussion about what he was thinking about exactly, <laughs> but, you know, to kind of to kind of have a little repository of um, empty space, you know, daydreaming space, thinking space. He sort of collected it on this blank piece of paper and it's exhibited. You can look at it and see if it's different from other pieces of paper, <laughs> you know, because it really holds a lot. But to kind of frame that um, work of artists that is conceptual, that it's reflective, um, I, I, like, I love that as a kind of embodiment of that. And it's a, it's a good piece. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I guess I was just wondering if there's more external pressure 
to deliver faster? And I guess the answer is yes, but no, not so I'm much. I'm not sure I would say that. I think I oh. think there are more and more artists oh. who are working right now, and there's and there is such, um, you know, a kind of cacophony of 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 work being produced, and certainly. I and my colleagues feel that there's the work that we're making and the time we spend working on it, and that's one aspect of our of our role in this huge social experiment. Um, but then there's there's also the contribution to just general the general literature of our society that comes from the discourse around all of that work and all of the missteps that happen and all of the discoveries that are shared. So it's, I mean, there's similarities to um, how science moves forward. You know, people are talking, they're sharing, they're, and we're always working because it's, it's, the, it's sort of the way we are in the world. It's, a, it's a, a daily practice of making and thinking about making and talking about making and trying to avoid it and discovering that actually that's when you're really making. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't feel there's, there's pressure to be doing more. I think in some ways it, it's actually harder for people to find space to, to present and show work. That seems kind of encouraging really to hear <laughs> that there's, the space continues to be created more than ever it sounds like. So I know we've talked, obviously we're talking about stillness and that's not the only thing an artist is out to pursue, but is there a responsibility then to society to pursue those themes in some overt way in any way? Or is it just one of the bag of tricks? It's a theme. <laughs> no, I, I, but we have a privilege. Like we, we were invited to Banff and given space in the mountains, you know, I mean, this is, um, this is a, a privilege to have these resources of time and space and um, all kinds of support. So if everyone else can't do it, maybe I'll be a kind of ambassador from that place if I can, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll get a grant to pursue these activities. And so, yeah, I'm, but it's not a duty. It's just something I like to think of doing with my privilege that's useful, actually. Christopher, you started most of the week with a session on this stage, actually, with participants to explore body and meditation. And, and Richard, earlier this week, you had a talk where you introduced literal silence into the conversation, which goes back to your, your family history. What's that been like to experiment? Like, it, it, it feels it was deliberate for you to do. It wasn't just a, an ad, it was an ad hoc thing, really. So what is that experience like of, like, finally, I know it's been a busy week, but those few moments where we actually have been able to calm down here and just be, how has that manifested itself in you so far in this residency? Was it too soon for that question? <laughs> no, it's not too soon. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, yeah, it, there's been, because obviously we're in this residency and sort of hosting this residency that has this theme, there's been a certain amount of necessary semantic back and forthing about what, okay, wait, what actually is stillness and how actually is my work about that or related to that or, you know, and all of us and how, what, you know, what, actually, what is it? Is it an absence of movement or is it 
quiet or is it presence and uh, you know presence of mind or presence of body or having an enhanced tactile experience of what it is that you're doing at the time that you're doing it and I think the latter has been the closest thing to feeling like Im embodying the theme for me is you know being in Christopher's done these marvelous workshops that are movement workshops and um, where we've all been you know he, where he's giving us a lot of different instructions but that are towards a really embodied experience of movement or of the present moment if you will or a, a way you know a way of experience uh, experiencing the present moment as a body having an experience you know this kind of simple yet very layered yet very simple yet very layered experiences which is the the ongoing moment that we're in that is um, you know, the great, <laughs> the great puzzle and the great experience. Um, but I think well, there's a long-winded way to get to uh, the, the most I've been able to really experience and understand the theme and the value of exploring the theme with a group of artists uh, is in the moments where we're trying to have a we're having an actual experience of the thing. We're not talking about what is the thing, although that's valuable to talk about what is the thing, but actually just feet on the ground and sitting or walking in the rain or, and, and just being in the moment and having a, just having the thing be the thing, not having the thing be talking about the thing necessarily. And then having a marvelous access to ways of being the thing, ways, ways of inhabiting, you know, ways of properly inhabiting the moment. And perhaps that's happening from diff slightly different angles that, you know, as, as each of us has presented in different ways. But wait, the different ways of just living the experience that you're living, you know, those are the, the, the moments being in the class or looking at, you know, in the movement class and making the movement that you didn't think, you didn't know your body was going to make and you didn't plan on making, but you're sort of feeling yourself just making the movement or your, or the piece of art or the staring at the piece of paper on the wall. It's, it's staring at someone else's log of time and allowing yourself to just be pulled into that and have that, you know, kind of feel that on an embodied level or all of us in a workshop that I did, we all kind of made some music in a kind of accidental, but unplanned intentional kind of way together you know just really embodying the thing is the thing for, for me you know that's been the most valuable all of the, the those moments where the I feel like I'm embodying the idea from a different angle have been have really been the 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 substance of the thing I think I think you know last night Pico was saying quite articulately about you know, how powerful meditation is, but how not everyone's really comfortable with that. They're worried about subscribing to a dogma, or, you know, whatever relationship you might have to that specific activity. But I think an important insight of the week has been how experiences of the arts, you know, listening to uh, one of the artists, you know, Bruce play piano in the dark for us really slowly and, you know, sitting in silence and, and just listening to the ambience of a room or, or to the um, wind outside in the trees, or you know, participating in a movement experience, um, you know, 
or whether it's drinking tea or, or sticking your arm in a beehive, um, that these kinds of experiences are available every day. And in Toronto, you know, we don't have mountains <laughs> and uh, I, we don't have an ocean, you know. So it's, it's really important for me to think about those moments, those reminders, those conduits, those opportunities, and many of them in the arts from, you know, being a part of or apprehending artworks that make those experiences available, those moments. Mm. But I don't think I want to stick my arm in a beehive. <laughs> <laughs> Come over. We'll try. We'll, <laughs> we'll breathe. <laughs> we'll wear a bee suit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Christopher, did the workshops you were giving in the morning, it's not something you necessarily commonly do all the time, is it? Um, certainly not at 8 a.m. <laughs> and I actually have this thing. I, I would never teach before 10 a.m. But because I live in Toronto, I decided I would stay on Toronto time. <laughs> 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 the, the two hours, so it worked out fine. Uh, it was. It's always 10 a.m. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a. It was a great experience, a real privilege, and an amazing learning experience to work with all of the participants in that way, and it. In terms of my own experience of stillness, it made it so clear to me that 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 the the great benefit, at least for me, of stillness is a place where you practice increasing sensation, which is access to your senses, and it's more a remembering rather than a. an act of constructing, because whether we like it or not, everything we experience in our lives, we experience through our bodies, through our senses, and it's just happening. And uh, we learn ways to uh, pretend that that's not happening, but it's actually not true. I mean, everything is sensation. And it's it's just so great to be, in a in a in a situation in this collective of people that that commit to this period of time quite early in the morning and on very very busy days not out of duty but coming from a place of curiosity and and being willing to experience the joy that emerges from it's it's so simple one of the best tools is uh, Diane's beautiful son, Felix, has come in the mornings. And he, he, there's something slightly uncanny about him. I hope you don't mind oh, yeah, me saying no, that. No, no. In that he, he, he's, he just vibrates with so <laughs> much intelligence and energy and uh, just so many wonderful, you know, sort of the ideal child aspects. But he seems to be missing the... The, the need that, I mean, I certainly had as a kid, or most kids have, for attention, for, hey, watch this a little bit. So he, he's just working in this <laughs> completely experiential way and doing these things. And he's such a teacher through his example. And I, and I think that when he came to class, it really upped the ante for us all, as a, <laughs> no, as a reminder. And it has nothing to do with being, you know, cute or adorable. It literally, there, there, there is a, a, an intelligence about being in the world that just comes from him. 
Yeah. It's great. I, so thanks. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm so grateful you let him come. But it is something, you know, as an artist, as a person, I think we do sometimes learn from kids. You know, they're not really, they're not really acting. They don't have preconceptions about things, especially when they're little, you know. And, and so he really is present. He doesn't really know how to be anything else. And, um, you know, and just coping with him day after day, uh, you know, they have such immediate, urgent needs, you know, it's very basic. It's, it's, it's just, it's right here. You can't really be anywhere else. And um, that is a gift, you know, that they bring for sure. I, I want to say one thing, and this is a part of a, a change in my own practice. It was an encounter with uh, an American choreographer named Deborah Hay, whose work is very much about experiencing the world through the body. And she talks about the body as teacher. Um, she asks the question, what if dancing is the one place in my life where I practice not being distracted? So it, it, so it becomes just an act of, of, of noticing what's around and, and also being willing to once you notice something to not sort of dwell on it and just dive into a whole series of thoughts around that thing, but then just disattach from that and notice again. And I think that's something that Felix is doing just because there's so much to experience. But the, the most beautiful thing that Deborah has said that I can remember is she talks about, um, this idea of through your body practicing the deep ethics of optimism, which is it's 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 just such an elegant and and very uh, tactile phrase somehow, and that's been a little bit of the of our mantra in in the morning from the beginning. So um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a way of physically being in of taking advantage of what emerges. I think we should leave it at that and let this audience <laughs> yeah, ask a couple of questions. Uh, thanks to all of you. Um, I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more about that deep ethics of optimism, because I, I, I'm convinced it's profoundly important, but I don't fully right. understand. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Right. Um, it's actually, a, a practical idea rather than some uh, sort of spiritual aspirational idea. And I mean, it can be reduced to a question like, what if where I am is what I need? Um, and or any kind of situation that might be less interesting or you may feel that you're you're just gonna check out because it's not feeding you in some way. And then perhaps discovering that there are all kinds of uses within that particular situation. It's, it's um, the deep ethics of optimism to me really feels, feels like a practical way of seizing the potential of a moment. And I, I brought up this sensation that I have constantly where um, I spend a couple of hours in an art museum. And then I come around the corner and there's a window and I look out the window and I'm like, oh my God, 
that landscape is so, so sublime. And it's because I've practiced seeing for a couple of hours or, you know, or even like the way the, you know, those canvas fire hoses are folded up in the fire extinguisher cabinet, <laughs> which are kind of amazing, but we learn not to really notice them. So practicing the deep ethics of optimism is, to me, is, is committing to an exercise of, of sensory awareness so that you, you find, not in, again, not in a, it's not a, a moral way, but in a, in, a, in a way that just serves your dialogue with the world, that enriches your dialogue with the world. And it's impossible to do it all the time, obviously. But when you're with a group of people who are excited about the same thing, then it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's interesting how, because I've been thinking a lot about it too and, and meaning to ask you, but working on my own understanding of this deep ethics of optimism. And for me, it's how feeling in all of its meanings is deeply bound up with caring. Right. And, um, and that has tremendous ethical implications. Right. Even something, I don't want to monopolize this, but I'm just thinking of, um, a number of the participants uh, said to me in the very beginning, part, part of the, what we're doing in the morning in, in opening our senses is um, looking at each other very directly in a way that we don't, uh, that we're trained not to do. I mean, you, you don't... No, no. Like, we all were, act, we're closing yeah, our eyes. Right. I mean, we, we, it's rude to stare, right? But children haven't had that smacked out of them yet and so so in a safe space how wonderful to actually to look directly you and to not see the person over there but to to see the person in your own body to to understand what is shared in that way and again it's kind of a physical thing so it's quite practical I have a question. First of all, thank you all for coming here and sharing your experiences. Um, I personally, I'm so happy that there are artists like yourselves who devote your lives to art. It's very important uh, to people, um, well, to everyone really, um, especially those of us who don't make time to do our own art. So I'm just maybe a comment on how in our society what I see is you know, when we're young, we're all painting, we're all dancing, we're all doing music and art. And, and when people retire, it seems, we're taking a, a pottery class or a painting class. Or, but there, and it's almost like it just happened, and, I, and now I'm in these years. There's this big middle chunk where people who don't devote their lives to art, um, and not all, all people, but where it becomes really hard to do that art and practice that art. And I guess I just want to know, what is your comment to... Those, those of us, I'm sure there's many here who are artists, um, but only for a small fraction of the time and um, who have to fight through a lot of non-still <laughs> stillness to, uh, to get to their art because of the bread and butter or whatever else they're doing in their lives. So maybe just a comment on that in our society. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Um, there is not ever enough time for everything. 
is my experience, but there is always enough time for at least one part of everything, um, one aspect. You know, if there's a if there's a hundred artistic aspirations that you have and that don't seem like they have enough time or space because of family and because of job and because of relatives and the hospital and because of junk mail and whatever, renovations, whatever, you know, whatever, the tchotchkes of everyday life. Um, I, there is all, I think there's always, no matter how your life is constructed, there is always an angle and a way by which to pursue at least one of those things. That's an artistic or experiential aspiration, I think. Um, and often once one, you know, if you, once you can adjust your, the pragmatics of your life or the perspective of your life um, enough to pursue and find one of those things, perhaps another one can also follow, or perhaps not, maybe there's only room for one. But I, I know there's always room for the experiences or the pursuits that feel like they're calling to you, even if it seems in the, you know, can, it's, it's really easy for it to seem like there's not enough time to pursue the things which, which call to us. And there, there, I think there is, it is always possible to find a way to follow one of them, if, if not all of them, for whatever that's worth. Which you, you have a vision of yourself where as you get older, you have fewer and fewer musicians and fewer and fewer <laughs> audiences right, as you right into the sunset. Yeah, we were having a conversation yesterday and I was joking that I, uh, my kind of music, artistic music career started like really loud and really famous and really untrained and really unhappy, playing to loads and loads of people too much of the time. And that as I get older, I aspire to be less and less, <laughs> less famous and quieter and quieter and more and more alone, playing to less yeah. people, but much, much more skilled and much, much more happy. Yeah, in a, certain, <laughs> in a certain respect, I think if art is not your career, if it's not how you make a living, you're, you're privileged in a different way because you do it for its own sake. If you could let go of, you know, ambitions and, you know, a status anxiety. I have plenty of friends who went to art school, are really artists deeply, and they're so fraught about calling themselves that because they don't do it as a profession and have shows, and, which is such a heartbreak because, um, yeah, uh, you can practice as an artist without making a living or putting lines on a CV, and you're kind of luckier in some respects. The, the ma like the making, like from, you know, there's a yeah. million different versions of this, but the making of a living as an artist is really just down to some pragmatics. Like it's the a actual, day job too. Yeah. It's a day job too, and it's a yeah. pain in, giant pain in the ass that you don't want to do. Like, <laughs> I don't want to get on a plane and fly to France to play a show for the weekend, but like, it's also <laughs> awesome and an insane privilege to get to do it. Do I want to get on a plane and have jet lag and play for 5,000 people that I've never met and never will meet? Not necessarily, yeah. but you. But then all, part of me wants to and, and is committed to it and it's like, okay, this is, you know, this is what you get to do. Let, let's do it awesome. Like, let's do it awesome, you know, but it's, even being committed to doing something awesome doesn't make you want to get on the plane when what you want to do is watch Netflix and be with your girlfriends <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that night, you know? I was just thinking about this sort of non-creative middle period. Um, 
And I think some pe sometimes people don't notice ways in which they are creative in their lives, the way they curate experiences, the way they collect things, the way they make decisions and, and divide aspects of their life. And that's, that's, that's really following. It's following your curiosity, your interest. Um, it's, it's improvising with what you've got. It's making decisions based on available resources all of the time, which often has to do with time. But you think of those tiny moments of pleasure when you have to do this one thing that you might even be embarrassed about. That's a sort of a bit of a, of a passion. Um, that, that's where I think in, in when we're imprisoned in that, in that middle period where people really survive as, as creative beings and acknowledging that and, and maybe finding space for pushing whatever that weird practice is a little bit further is, 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 is a way of, of finding comfort. You know, um, Laurie Brown, the other day we were talking about this and she said, does making dinner count? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Hugely. Yeah. Hugely. And, and it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm always worried yeah. I'm not doing enough. And so I, I take comfort in that too. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I, one of my dearest old friends, she lives in rural Wales and she's a really beautiful playwright and she's now a mother of three. And she, I remember talking to her and she decided when she had child number three, she was like, okay, <laughs> I'm just not gonna call myself a playwright this time. With this child, I'm not gonna call myself a playwright and feel like my children are a distraction to my true calling as a playwright. I'm just gonna do the thing, which is raising my child and being, you know, and being able to actually just live that and not feel like it's always calling me away from my more important calling, you know, and just blissfully happy and also so creative. Also, it, it actually enabled her to write a ton when she wasn't trying to carve space to write. It actually just, she just was focusing on doing the thing that she was doing and having a good time and getting to enjoy this beautiful new creature, you know, and cooking for the creature and yeah, caring, and like, like and I mean, dealing, using... you know, but then it, and it actually opened, like, floodgates and she started being super creative and she would just find time, rather than, you know, rather than, she just kind of swift swapped the, the paradigm and it. And, I mean, if we can accept that, like, raising a kid, you know, with an artist's tools, it like, is creatively. entirely a is, creative act. It's a creative it's practice. It's the most creative it's act. It's an art practice, yeah. right? You yeah. just have to have the nerve to own that and, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for coming, everyone. Thanks for being on stage.